0: Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Hey everybody, it's Chris. And it's just me. I'm here by myself this week. Unfortunately, Anna and Amos weren't able to join me. They both had stuff that came up. And I mean, honestly, we released the podcast so sporadically and were so bad about maintaining a schedule that I really just wanted to make sure that something got recorded so that we'd have another episode to release next week because it's just already so chaotic and we're so bad about maintaining any semblance of uh, an honest schedule. So, so this week you just get me by myself. The other big difference this week is that uh, normally we'll record this, uh, this show pretty early in the morning, actually, which is um, yeah, like really early for, uh, for Anna who's all, all the way out on the West coast. Uh, and that just sort of helps us all um, accommodate that into our schedules. But um, because it's just me, I'm actually here and it's late at night my whole family is asleep. I think I'm probably the only one awake. Uh, so it might be a little bit groggy as we do this. And you'll also notice I'm not really using my normal assertive podcast voice. I'm talking just in my normal speaking voice that I would normally use uh, when we we were just having a conversation. So I, I don't really have anything planned for this. Um, we're kind of just going to go off the cuff and normally, I mean, normally I make jokes with the other hosts and we sort of riff and play off each other, but it's going to be hard to do that here (laughs) by myself. So this might be tedious, but, and we'll probably, it's probably a terrible idea and we'll never do this again. Uh, but I thought this would be kind of fun, uh, kind of a fun chance to do something light and just talk through some of the stuff that I think is really interesting right now. Some of the stuff I've been working on. And because that will only occupy maybe five minutes worth of time, I also got back on Twitter, which is a service I had ostensibly quit, and asked um, people to send me questions because I was going to be by myself, and I wanted to fill up some more time. So uh, I kind of figured there'd be a lot of jokes in here. Um, But actually, everybody who sent me a question sent me a really, really good question. uh, And I actually sat and thought about these for a bit. And a lot of them I don't really have good answers for. So that's probably how you know it's a really good question. So I thought we'd just dive into some of these and kind of talk and see where it goes. So the first one I got uh, was about about Norm, about the project that I recently released called Norm, and the differences in my approach. But be- well, the differences between my approach and another library called X Contract. So truthfully, I hadn't seen X Contract, and uh, I went and looked it up. And it's actually really interesting. It's a really really compelling library, and and you know it's actually orthogonal to uh, some of the stuff I've been working on in Norm, um, but it actually solves some different pr- um, problems that I've been having, and uh, and I, I'm I may end up just leaning into X Contract uh, and and doing using what they're already kind of working on or extending it. But X contract is a way to uh, it's a, it's a, it's another way to do design by contract. And if you're not familiar with design by contract, design it's it's really fascinating. You should totally go look it up and I'll I'll try to put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But design by contract is a way to specify invariants about your system. And the really cool thing about it is you can get very granular with them. So you can actually specify invariants all the way down at the function level or at a higher system level. Uh, and that's really where the power is to me. Is that because you can arbitrate well? That's part of the power, and we'll talk about the other half of it in just a second. But a big part of the power is that you can go in there and start to drop these bits in these 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 contracts in different parts of your system, and they immediately become useful. A lot of times, and I mean, I'm, I realize that you know it's now my gimmick to be the anti-type system guy, and I'm not here to like necessarily bash types. But a lot of times with types. It's all or nothing, right? So you have some system, like you have a Haskell uh, or you have a Rust, which requires you to, um, well, Rust specifically requires you to annotate lots of things. And, you know, you end up in this place where you have to make the whole thing work because that's how, you know, that's how solvers work. That's how type systems work or those types of type systems work, I should say. Uh, And so you end up having to get it all right. Which means that when you're, you know, refactoring things, it's convenient because it tells you that, you know, hey, you got all these things wrong. There's some drawbacks to that, which I've talked about in other episodes. But, you know, you you have to get it all right. The other side of that, if you want to add a type system to a language which didn't have one to begin with, is you use something like success types, which is what we have in Dialyzer, or you use something like gradual typing, which is, you know, what they're having... They have some f- flavor of that in TypeScript and other things, and I you know people have tried to add gradual types to to Erlang and Elixir. One of the drawbacks to gradual typing, though, is that, and and we see this um, in systems like Dialyzer, is they don't start to pay dividends until you really get sort of this critical mass of things that are typed until you can sort of go in there and say like these are the types I expect, this is what you should be getting, and and you don't immediately get feedback about them uh, until you do this sort of critical mass of things. And, and often you have to guide those things. You have to guide those types uh, so that, you know, they can actually do c- the correct inference and find problems for you. Or, you know, if you're not using dialyzer, you're using something like a gradual type system that they don't have erroneous errors because a lot of the gradual typing systems have erroneous errors. Um, Design by contracts, really cool. Um, because it immediately is useful. Like you can drop it into on top of any function and it's immediately, immediately useful. And it's because you have a ton of expressive power. And this is the other really, really cool thing. And I think this is what makes design by contract. So compelling is that it allows you to specify stuff at runtime. You can actually go in and say, here's the preconditions for my function. Which are the things that I expect to receive, or things that have to be true before this function's called. And you can also specify post conditions, and these are things that must be true after the function's called, or it might be about the return values. And all that stuff is checked at runtime. So when you're in development and you're in tests and you're and you're um, you know really running the system, you can validate these things, these like really complex, interesting, powerful invariants. Uh, and they immediately become useful as you drop them in, like you don't need a critical mass of them. You could go into your error kernel and you could start to put these in place inside of the error kernel. Why I say error kernel. I mean the thing in the middle of, of your, of your application that, you know, needs to not fail the thing, like the most valuable state or the thing that needs to like stay, stay up. And so you can start to go put these things around like core data structures or important bits of your system, that you need to be more reliable and you immediately can start to get value out of them. So I think this is really compelling. Um, and X contract looks like a really good way to do this um, and it's actually better in a lot of ways than, the, than some of the stuff I've been working on uh, that's or sort of orthogonal to norm. So norm itself the, I mean the, the main difference is that normally isn't about design by contract at all. I'm very compelled by design by contract and I've been working on other things that I might now I, r- I might rather put my effort into something like X contract now. Uh, But norm is actually orthogonal to that because norm is a way to specify data moving through your system. And these two two techniques play really well together. They go really hand in hand. But norm is very much outside of that. Like I say, norm is just a way to specify data moving through the system. And the cool thing is we can start to specify any shape of data that we want as it moves throughout our Elixir code because, again norm gives you the full expressivity of the language to write your specs in. Um, we don't, we use a mat, there's a single macro that, ter- that takes predicates and turns them into specifications. And you can compose those together with higher level things like schemas um, and do selections of schemas if you want optionality of keys. So if you want to say like, I have a schema for users, users um, sometimes have names, um, selections allow you to do that. And there's a really important reason that we do it that way instead of making them optional on the schema itself, which is that, you know, the call site needs to determine when something's optional and when it's not. You know, you think about like a plug con moving through your plug stack. When is a key on your assigns? Like, when's it optional? Well, before it's assigned, it's optional. Before it's assigned, you don't have it. So how do you specify stuff like that? obviously after it's been assigned well now we require it so maybe all the way down in our phoenix controller we need these assignments on con to be there at which point we want to do it's not optional anymore we need those to be there and so we actually take optionality out of schemas and we make it um we make things optional at the call site so where you are in the call site when you need a piece of data that's where you specify whether something's optional or not optional and then the final thing with norm is that because we uh, have the full power and the full expressivity of elixir we're also um, able to turn around and generate data with it um, so we can actually take those schemas and then generate values and so that's really the big difference between uh, what i'm working on x contract uh, and and it's part of why i think these things go so well together because you can imagine if i've got an invariant around some function which is like you know an invariant is uh, a combination of preconditions and postconditions, right? Things that have to be true before the function's called and things that have to be true after the function's called. Well, now I can add, you know, data specification into that. So I can start to say things like, you know, the precondition is that uh, this function that takes users takes this user. And at this point, this keys, keys have to be there. They can't be optional anymore. They have to be provided. And that has to be passed in. And then what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take this and put this in the database, and then I'm going to return you back uh, a fully hydrated user from the database with an ID and those sorts of things. And so I can uh, my precondition would be I'm giving you're, you're giving me these parameters with um, this data, and my post condition would be well, I might have two post conditions. My post condition would be I'm going to return you a fully formed user, and my other post conditions it got stored in the database, and you could actually go check inside the post condition to see if it's in the database or not, and that forms a a, a contract around what that function is going to do for you. Uh, and you can take that to the highest level or the lowest level and really start to specify really, really interesting uh, properties of your system. And I think that is why uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so compelled by that, because um, it just does so much more than a lot of these other systems. Uh, and there's no... There's, there's downsides to it as always with everything and there's constraints around these things, but the benefits that you get out of it far outweigh what you're paying in my mind. So like I said, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm going to, I'm really excited to see where this goes. I'm actually really excited that I've, that I was linked to this library. So uh, thanks for sending that my way. Uh, I'm really excited about it. So uh, I got a couple other really good ones here. Let's see. So I got a uh, good one from Devin um, that said, uh, do you feel like going remote has hampered your ability to grow uh, both as a developer and interpersonally politically within your organization? Is there anything you really focus on to make sure you don't fall behind in those areas, even though your company isn't all remote? This is a great question because I think this gets at the heart of one of the scariest parts of going remote. And this is one of the ones that I do not Necessarily have a good answer for because I am really still trying to figure this out and I think going remote. I mean, well, first of all, I I really really enjoyed going remote. I'm really happy I went remote. I've been remote now in some shape or form uh, for probably about close to three years now. And before that, I was working in a satellite office for a company in San Francisco from here. And so um, that doesn't really count because just being in the office is a is a big deal. But totally honestly it took me a year at least to get the hang of remote work and to kind of get over my fear of it. Uh, And when I say fear, I mean the fear of just not being there when something important is happening and not being involved in a certain conversation and not, you know, getting a certain amount of recognition for my work or, and, and not, you know, and, and constantly worrying about like, this is going to be the day that I get let go. You know, there are still, I had, I told my manager, even uh, at, at my current job, um, like, I need you to be aware that every time that you schedule a one-on-one with me, I assume it's because you're going to fire me. And that is just the nature to I mean, Partially that's my nature as a kind of anxious person, but I think it's part of the nature of being remote. Cause I think a lot of people share that when I've talked to other people who've done this, that they share that same thing, uh, those same sort of sentiments, because, it is hard. It's hard to to make sure you're feeling connected. And it's hard not to feel like you need to be sort of over-connected at any given point. And I've had to really try to put really good boundaries in place so that I can avoid being constantly connected and feeling like, uh, I, you know, and having that feeling of I need to be around because if somebody needs something and I'm not there, they might let me go, <laughs> and I might wake up and have to get a real job where I have to work for a living. And this is the thing. Like I come from a long line of people who had to work for a living, and that sounded way less fun than getting paid to do my hobby, <laughs> which is what I get paid to do now. So that feels, you know, that feels uh, scary. So it's something I yeah, it's something I still struggle with. I don't know that I have great uh, advice, but there's some things I learned the hard way or one is like, for the most part, no one's just going to fire you. And so you have to like, kind of get over it a little bit. Uh, and then I did a couple things that are really helpful. One is I put really pretty strong boundaries around my time. So, you know, if it hits five 30 on the East coast, like, you know, I'm pretty at this point, I am pretty good about being like, that is late for me. I'm not doing a meeting now. Uh, I don't just like suck that stuff up anymore. I uh, voice those things because the thing that happens when you voice those things is that people acknowledge it, and then they realize that um, you don't want to do a meeting at five thirty, and then they uh, and then they, they they reschedule it, and then it all works out. Um, but you know, getting to the point where I would voice that stuff took a while. The other main things I've had to really, I've personally had to learn is how to over communicate. I, I just generally don't like to talk a lot about the cool stuff that I work on or like, I don't know, like market myself. It's a thing that actually drives Amos crazy about this podcast. Cause I won't, <laughs> I refuse to like market for it uh, very much. um Cause it makes me feel a- awkward and uncomfortable and I don't like it. Uh I, That's just not, that's not how I want to see myself, I guess, or whatever. But, um but actually like, that's the thing. Like if you're not good at that, like, you know, that work is is that much more likely to go unnoticed. Um, And and that matters at some point. You know, it matters that people know the kind of stuff that you're working on and getting to a point where you can kind of, I don't know, I mean, uh, like almost brag on yourself a little bit. That took time. Um, And the way I do it now is I actually keep a running document of all the things that I've worked on that I think are interesting and compelling to the business. And I just keep a running list. It's just like a text file that sits in my desktop. Uh, and I just like drop stuff down in there of stuff that I think you know is interesting that I've worked on. Other than that, it's like being very vocal with people, sending out status updates, like being over communicating. That's all a big deal, uh, and you have to kind of get used to doing that. You know, the other boundaries I've put up is like I don't have Slack on my phone anymore. I refuse to have it, and um, when I do have it, I, I've occasionally reinstalled it for when I'm going to be on call, just in case I need to get a hold of people. I turn off all the notifications. Um, I've set, you know, really, really clear escalation policies for how people get a hold of me if some of my stuff breaks and that's all automated. And, you know, doing those kinds of things really helps feel like you don't always have to be connected um, on stuff. And and then the the final thing for in terms of like staying connected uh, in the organization is I make an effort to go out at least to San Francisco to our headquarters at least four times a year. Uh, once a quarter is is about the right cadence for me personally. Uh, that's the amount I like to be to be traveling, and I think that's been really helpful. Uh, at, at this at my current company and other companies, just to kind of like check in, see how everybody's doing, like get the pulse of the office, all that kind of stuff, and that's been that's been really helpful. I've been very fortunate in that most of the companies I've worked at have either been Uh, my team has entirely been remote or the company has essentially started shifting to more remote. And honestly, the company I'm at right now, like I'm really fortunate in that a lot of people have gone remote since remote worker remote work became more of a thing. Um, You know, I was one of the first, not, not the first, but I was one, I was in the first kind of batch of, of remote uh, backend people at Bleacher Report. Uh, And since then, like a lot of people have left San Francisco A lot of people are um, coming on from all all over the country and we're hiring more and more remote folks. And so that's been really helpful because the worst position to be in is when you're the remote person in a sea of not remote people because you do miss out on stuff. That's just, that's what's happening. Like people are talking in the office and hanging out and getting coffee and whatever and like building that camaraderie. Like those things do happen. Like that's just, that's just is how it is but that pain gets a lot lessened when you have a whole team who is spread out and you have a whole company who sort of understands that if we're going to have this communication it can't happen in a meeting somewhere where we don't have access to a webcam or whatever you know and it and honestly it really can't even happen in slack like i actually think slack is a terrible medium for having important conversations in because it it's not asynchronous like people want to pretend that it You know, and Slack's marketing is like, we're better than email because we're, you know, that's like, that's that people just hate email that much or whatever. But email is a way better medium for communicating important decisions than Slack is because it is actually asynchronous. Slack's not like if you have to feel like you need to be involved because you might miss an important conversation then it's not an asynchronous communication. And there is no such thing as like the scroll back. Like, what are you going to scroll back through 20 channels? You know, maybe that works for some companies, some places, but I don't think that that's, that's reasonable. Um, And so that's been growing. Those are all growing pains that I've seen every company who goes remote have to go through and trying to find ways to do, to, to streamline that communication process is really important and trying to, you know, find, you know, figure out when it is important to get people in the room together, because I think there is a certain amount of fidelity that you lose when, you move to text, like you know, we we talk to each other, we notice vocal text, we notice inflection, and we notice uh, body language. like those are things that we just do as as a as humans. Uh, and and those are lost by and large when you move into text. And so uh, I don't, you know, I haven't found text to be a more efficient way to communicate ideas yet you know, you you really always have to give everybody the benefit, the doubt and assume that no one is, has ill intent. Everybody's trying to communicate in the best way possible and but a lot can get lost in that medium. So you know it's it's a growing process like figuring out how to do that. So those are things that I really focus on. in terms of whether I feel like it's it's hampered my ability to grow as a developer, um definitely not. probably the opposite uh, for me, only because I'm fairly self-directed. I I taught myself how to program. I never really had classes in it. I, you know, have always learned this stuff on my own. And, you know, I've I've been privileged to have the opportunities in the free time and the flexibility of my life to be able to do that for sure. But, you know, I've always taught myself that stuff and I've always found, you know, that's just part of my life. And I'm not saying that that's, that's not a judgment. Uh, It's not, you know, I'm not saying people have to do that. That's not a judgment. I'm not saying that people have to do that in order to be good programmers or, or in order to make remote work or whatever. But for me, remote has opened up so much more of my free time because you know I, I have the more on my mornings where I'm not commuting and I have my lunch where I've got access to my you know books and I've got access to things and uh, you know I can. It's just it's it just so it's so much more flexible. That uh, I feel like I have a lot more time to sort of focus on projects that are important to me or things that I want to grow in. and And, you know, truthfully too it, it helps uh, being remote helps with finding time to do that with a family because there's so much more time during the day where I can give my my wife some breathing room from the kiddos and, like, you know, that division of labor ends up being um, much more, much more split. Although she still does the lion's share of the work with the kids. Like I'm not here to, you know, pretend otherwise, but it does help that she has some slack. So it's, it's easier for all of us to have t- a little bit of margin in our lives for that kind of stuff. You know, I, I will say the one downside is if you don't have people to push you um, who can like, who are mentoring you, um, that can be a real drawback. And and I think I've definitely experienced that. Um, and I don't have a good way to do that uh, in, in a vacuum. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have a really, really good community where I live in Tennessee of some really smart engineers who have uh, experience doing distributed systems and who are the ones who taught me all this stuff. And so because of that, uh, I sort of make up for any lack of mentorship um, through my company, although that's not to say that I don't have... I don't learn things or, you know, don't have people who, who teach me stuff at my jobs. But I think uh, in terms of like what what I would consider to be like true mentors, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of that in my community here. So uh, that helps, you know, kind of sustain some of those things and helps kind of push me to do new things. But yeah, those are really tough. It's, it's, it going remote was hard. It's still hard. Um, I still freak out about it and uh, it's been really useful for my life, but it's definitely not for everybody. I could see, I, I mean, I, you know, there's definitely personality types that I don't know would would love this. So yeah, hopefully that was a useful, um, hopefully that was useful feedback. So uh, Alex, friend of the show asked, uh, how do you communicate complex systems to others less familiar with the code or language? Um, this is another super good question. And I, this is another one that I don't have an answer to because yeah, I think it's really hard and and it's and it's going to be totally based on your team and the people on your team and their comfort levels with uh, mentorship, their comfort levels with documentation and and patience and all these kinds of things. But probably the best way I've done it generally, uh, and the things that I've seen best uh, that that are the fastest, the 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 biggest multipliers for productivity is pair programming. I love pairing. There is only so much of it I can do in a day because it is exhausting. You know, I think there's this this misconception that you don't get as much done. Uh, if you have two people working on the same pro- problem, how could you possibly get more done? And the trick is like, there's no downtime. If you're pairing, like there's never a downtime because you have to build downtime in because part of it's peer pressure. You just kind of keep egging each other on and keep going. And there's, you don't, you know, you know, do whatever you check a blog or, or uh, you know, read Reddit or whatever it is that you would normally waste time on, like you're always motivated to keep working on the next thing. And and the other bit is that, you know, you're able to, the minute you can't think of the next function to type or whatever, someone else will figure that out and you just keep going. And so pairing is, um, pairing's great. Uh, You know, I, some companies like, I know pivotal does pairing all literally all day, all the time, every day. It's really regimented. I can I couldn't do that personally. Like that's just way too much for me. But you know, I think a little bit of pairing for a couple hours um that goes a long way and it's a really good way to if both parties are into it and ready to like really sit down and if you structure it well, like get good tools, you know, like don't you know, don't use Slack's crappy um video streaming stuff. Like you know, get a real way to share an editor. If you use like Vim or Emacs or one of these, you know, can also, you can typically like SSH to the other box or use teammate. Uh, I'm a big fan of using teammate. Um, that happens to work well with the people I tend to work with just because they also happen to use Tmux and Vim. And so we're fortunate in that, but you know, find a way to do it, do that uh, really share your, your editor experience uh, in some way. And then really pair together that way. And that tends to be the best way to actually sit with people and walk through it and walk through a real problem, you know, because that's, go- you know, don't try to just like peruse the code and say like, these are these 20 concepts, you know, work on a real thing, uh, because that's going to walk you through the important bits and it's going to help you stay focused on stuff. So you can kind of explain like, this is why we made these choices when we built this stuff. But, you know, you know, here's how we're going to solve this problem here's how what we're going to do in the future et cetera, et cetera. so you can kind of break it down that way that's the way that i think i know best otherwise it's like document your code like write comments i know people talk all the time about how comments are bad comments are not bad people read code more than they write code take the time and write good documentation and write comments and stuff like that and help people try to help people level up that way but um yeah i think and then just generally like you know, you want to mentor people like as a as you as you become a more technical leader, uh, you, you know, part of your job needs to be figuring out how to mentor other people because you can have the best ideas in the world. I mean, this is purely, purely selfishly, like, you know, even if you don't like people, here's the deal. You can have the best idea in the world, but no one's going to go along with it if no one if you can't sell it to everybody else. So. You should be a mentor because it's a good empath- empathetic thing to do. But if you can't find that in you, do it because no one's going to listen to you otherwise. And, uh, at least then you can try to communicate some of these ideas better and maybe learn empathy along the way. So, yeah, uh, there's another great question. I don't, I wish I had other ideas about this. This is something that I really am still struggling with and like still trying to learn, honestly, like this is a thing that, um. That I'm really trying to teach myself that I'm 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 frankly not very good at right now, and so I'm trying to get better at it as I as I try to develop those skills more. So I had two questions that are kind of very similar, and uh, I'll try to tackle them at the same time. And the first is, if I were Jose Jose for some unlimited amount of time, uh, what would I change or add to Elixir? Uh, um, And then the other one was, what is the most annoying, frustrating thing about working in Elixir? And so. I uh, I want to tackle these kind of at the same time because I think they're they're related and I'll uh, we'll start with the more positive stuff which is like what are things that I would change or add to Elixir and uh, I want to caveat this with like I would add them I mean first of all I wouldn't be Jose for a day you like well there is an amount of money you could pay me to be Jose for a day but I that I don't want that that is not that's not what I want I I have a hard time handling the amount of issues and work and feature requests and pull requests and just like, you know, nonsense that shows up on the internet and the mailing list and everything else. I don't know how he keeps up with all these things and stays as positive as he does. (laughs) Like I could not do that. So I do not want this job that let me be very clear about that. The other thing is that I have some ideas of stuff that I would like to add to Elixir that I have not thought about the ramifications of. And I'm sure if I actually talked to Jose about it, he would understand the ramifications of them. And he would have probably like explained why they're never going to work, which is totally reasonable and totally fine. So these are things that I think would be really nice to have in Elixir, but that I haven't fully thought through the ramifications of. And, and a few things that I would change. So the first thing I would change, full stop, is I would, um, I would remove the spec and type syntax uh, stuff that was inherited from Dialyzer. Uh, I would remove those from Elixir. Um, Just completely. Um, I think having them built into the language is interesting, but they're so tied to the way that Dialyzer works that it limits our ability to do something that's maybe more interesting, um, to do something that's maybe unique to Elixir. And uh, yeah, I think cleaving to those, like as a thing that's built into the language, it has a lot of negatives that go with it especially compared like like it has positives right you know that they show up in your documentation there's like a clearly defined way to do that stuff but like Dialyzer's is not even built into elixir you have to install a secondary package for that right it's like it's arguable that it's in the beam or whatever but it's not really right because you need these wrappers around it in order to understand the errors in order to have it un- like emit things that look like elixir still so it's not even like dialyzers is not even built into elixir and so like it's not it's it's not easily accessible from just if you just install elixir uh, and so I actually think there's very little i I, I don't I, I think I think it'd be a worthwhile thing to just remove from the language proper and it opens the door to do other things it opens the door to I don't know like, like going back to the design by contract stuff like and the data specification stuff like I'd rather see something like that built into the language and it's hard to do that because dialyzer fills that space and the, and the spec stuff fills that space. So uh, yeah. So I think that's like, that's the first thing that I would just change um, and, and maybe just remove other, the other two ideas that I, that I had is um, I would add a first class support for vectors, uh, immutable uh, vectors. Like they have enclosure. I don't think there's, I think lists are kind of just a bad data structure. And I know that we use them. I mean, as far as I can tell, like, no, nah, well, one, a large part of why we use them, why we use the syntax for them is they're so ubiquitous in Erlang. Uh, and it allows us to easily interop with Erlang. I think vectors are more useful most of the time for the operations that I do on a regular basis, for passing around the amounts of data that I pass around. Like vectors would be more useful. Spinning over lists end-to-end is not actually that awesome. Um, and And using maps with index keys isn't that awesome. Like I'd rather have a... Um, a a proper vector type uh, that allowed for some of these operations on vectors without having to kind of hack around it using like maps and stuff like that. Uh, And there's I think there's a lot of benefit to to having something like vectors. So I would be keen to add those um, to the language. I don't know if I would add them in a way that, you know, you could pattern match on them or anything like that. Like, I don't think I'd go that far. Maybe it depends. I have to think about it, but, but in the same way that we have, you know, map set, As part of the language, like I would rather, I think I would like to see like a vector implementation just because I think it's a really, really useful, a useful thing to have uh, in the language. And then, and then the final thing, and I have even no idea if this is even possible to add to the language at all. And I have no idea if this is even possible to do, but I would figure out a way to unify um, the disparity between atom keys and string keys and maps. I have no idea if that's possible. But constantly having to know which one you're dealing with and move back and forth between them is a giant pain. And so, uh, you know, and I get that there's there's reasons to not do it, namely like the, the atom, like the atom limits and Erlang and, you know, all these kinds of things. I don't have a good answer for it. I would love to figure out, um, to think through a good way to do it. There probably isn't one, which is why we haven't done it. Even if it meant breaking some amount of compatibility with Erlang, like I'm actually comfortable with that as a, as a language, if it means more ergonomics in elixir, uh, I'm fully comfortable with that. You know, I think, I don't know how you would do it. Uh, I would, but it's something that I would, I would love to figure out how to do because, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fairly tedious to have to jump back and forth between them in terms of what the most annoying or frustrating thing about working in elixir is. I don't know. I don't know if there's any, I think, Part of it is I'm so broken as somebody who's been doing this now for a number of years uh, and been around Elixir for so many years. I don't really, I think I'm desensitized to things that are actually probably annoying and are actually probably frustrating. Like I'm just so used to them that I don't notice them anymore. And so I'm probably not even the best person to ask about this because I've just internalized it. Honestly, I tend to not have that many problems with Elixir as a language. I tend to not be annoyed uh, with Elixir. I tend to be annoyed by everything around Elixir. Uh, and by which I mean libraries, idioms, the the way the community currently feels about any given topic, the way the community conducts itself, the the things that the community is into at any given moment. Those are the things that frustrate me. Uh, because I think they limit I, I like I think there are certain things that that the community is like really focused on that limit our ability to get adopted. There's a lot of like memes that go around uh, about, you know, a different technology choices and you don't need these things. Cause we have Elixir and all this kind of stuff that like, I just find really off putting and I'm, I'm refraining from like saying any of the specific things. Cause I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that's the stuff that annoys me these days is more just kind of like, just uh, like finding issues um, in packages or, I don't mind fixing that stuff. I mean, we've obviously like shipped our share fair share of stuff back to the community, but um, it's just tough. If you know, if you run into enough packages that are all sort of like in semi broken States that like, Oh, it's just like, that's a, it's a rough thing to have to, it's a, it's a, it makes it a tough sell. It makes it a tough sell as a language. So, yeah. And I think, I think the community is like really fixated on a lot of stuff that I just don't care about. And, and it's not to say that that's bad. It's not to say that like what the community is into isn't worthwhile or interesting. Cause it, that's, that's, it's, it's not, uh, I mean, it's, it's like super compelling for them and like, you have to solve your own use cases and all this kind of stuff. It's just that those things don't affect me. And so I, it, I think where I end up landing on it is it just makes me feel a little bit isolated from the community. And I think that's where they, my annoyance with it comes from for, them, for the most part. I'm sure I, if I sat here and thought, I could think about something that annoys me about Elixir. But I think at this point, I'm just so broken that whatever feelings I had about it that were that were frustrated uh, are in the early days are, are gone at this point. Oh, the anonymous function syntax—I'm still frustrated by that. There you go. I found one, so we'll add that to the list. That'll the things that the pull requests that will always get rejected. So the final the final question I, I got from a good friend of the show uh, Lance who said, "What is it like to record this this podcast every week, every week ish, and what's it like to hear back from listeners, good and bad?" So I, I wanted to finish this because I think it's 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 interesting. It's something that's been like I've been thinking about a lot recently. It's something I've been uh, mulling over in my in my head. Of you know, I've been asking myself the question a lot more recently. Like. Ah, Why am I? Why why do I do this podcast? Um, Because it does take up a fair bit of time and that kind of stuff. The honest answer is, recording the show every week is a blast. Like I love recording the show with um, with Ana and with Amos um, because that's just fun. It's just fun to get to talk about this stuff that I'm excited about, and it's fun to be able to discuss things. With them and and riff and joke and laugh and have a good time and even on the episodes where we get salty about or I get salty about things uh, and and we get yelled at and all that kind of stuff like that's fine like I I have fun when I'm recording those things I have to say that the feedback I get from the community is overwhelmingly positive you know Uh, we get so much love from all 'all y'all who hilariously listen to this thing. Uh, listen to us ramble and and make bad jokes every week, uh, and that's a lot of fun. It's great to be part of. It's it's a, it's a great way to be part of this community. And it's a fun way to be part of this community, and it's and it's a fun way to give back to this community. And I I really enjoy that aspect of it. There are definitely times where we get feedback, and it's and um about you know, stuff that we say that isn't well received and it starts these big discussions and all this kind of stuff. And and honestly, like I'm, I'm just bad at handling those kinds of things. Like I'm not good at that. I'm not good at taking a lot of criticism from a lot of people all at once uh, and trying to process that and parse it and figure out how I feel about it and figure out where we stand on it and how much I care about it. Yeah. It's that, that part's hard and it's hard largely just because I'm, I'm you know not good at that at processing that kind of stuff, and I engage with it slightly too much, but overall, you know, doing this show is a ton of fun, and it's worth a lot of the bad sides of it. It's worth a lot of the downsides that come from putting your opinions and thoughts out there in front of a lot of people who then can decide whether or not they agree with you or not, which is totally their prerogative. Uh, and that's part of this transaction and part of the, you know, part of the uh the community that we're that we're in. And so I think overall it's that's been a, a learning experience, especially I can't speak for anybody else, but definitely for me. And learning how to figure out how to to take that feedback uh, and apply it and what to listen to and what not to listen to, and what feedback to apply and what not to apply and what things you're going to let roll off of you and who you're going to meet on Twitter and whatever. That's just been a learning experience. And I think overall it's been a lot of fun and I'm happy that we're continuing to do the show and, and people seem to still be enjoying it. So that's everything I had. Thanks again so much for sending me questions and letting, and if you've listened this long, thanks for listening to me ramble. I'm sure this will be a terrible episode and we'll never air this or if we air it, we'll never do it again. Uh, because there's no way that this is gonna be compelling for anybody, but yeah, like I said, I just wanna say at, at the end uh thanks to thanks to everybody for listening. thanks for supporting us, supporting the show. um, we're really excited to see you. We're gonna be at um at elixirconf. We're gonna be at gig city elixir, and we're and you know around in the community, other places. so if you see us at those events, please come up, say hi. We'd love to talk to you and uh, hear how you're doing and uh yeah. Thanks for being awesome, and we'll see you next time.